welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hey, welcome to the podcast, Father John and Father Sean. And we are sitting here uh, just outside of Our Lady of Lourdes Parish on a lovely Sunday afternoon, having crushed some Chipotle, which is always <laughs> that was a, so a good. sabbatical joy. So, Did you say sabbat- oh, sabbatical as in you get it? the Sabbath, yes. There you go. I uh, uh, am talking to Father Sean. He is fresh off of um, a three-day retreat, right, with the uh, John Paul the Great High School. This is our local That's high right. school here, Independent Catholic High School. And he took about a 14er. Some of them. Yeah, so the goal was to get everyone to Treeline. All but one person made it to Treeline. Oh, man. And we don't need to say that person's name, whether it was a guy or a girl, you'll never know. Um, so one person, we were moving so slow. I was so frustrated. And then we got to Treeline, and then I had, had no desire to go to the peak. I was like, because Chris, our, the guy leading the trip, Chris Lanciotti, he was like, hard turn around at 11 a.m. Oh, Lanciotti no, led yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. No exceptions. Hard turn around at 11 a.m. And at this point, it was 940. We oh, man. From treeline. So 12,000 feet. Mount Elber's the tallest. 14.4. That's so a we, long ways. We have 1,400. We have, what would that be? 2,400 feet to go in one hour. <laughs> and so I look at some of the high school boys, and there's this guy, specifically Sam, He's just like, I want to reach the summit. And I said, Sam, if we're going to reach the summit, we got to like go as hard Cruise. as we can. Yeah. And then we passed the group that was in front of us, which was Chris and some other people. And I looked at Chris and I said, is it still a hard turnaround at 11? He goes, yes, unless you hear from me otherwise. <laughs> so then so I said, Sam, let's go. We get up to the summit at 11.03. Wow. Then I look at my phone and Chris had texted me. He goes, new turnaround time, 11.45. <laughs> You're like, that's crazy. You got from Treeline. Yeah. All the way to the top. In an hour, 25 minutes. That Yeah, you guys must have been flying. My heart rate was super high. I got like a little sick, actually, because I got on top. I'm like, why is everything spinning right now? Oh, man. Because <laughs> my heart rate was so high. That's impressive. Uh, but I was proud of them. We had about 10, 10 people make it up, three girls, which I was very proud of them. And then uh, we did not have mass on top. We had mass at the bottom, back near the parking lot. Um, but yeah, it was great. great That's trip. good. That's the good JPG hear. Mountaineers. JPG Mountaineers, I love that. I didn't know they were the Mountaineers, that, but uh, I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a student body voting, which I don't recommend. Yeah. So, <laughs> the uh, yeah the freshmen last year they kind of felt like we're the founding fathers and mothers of this school, which is hilarious. But um, so we played that up. But yeah, now there's sophomores at the school and it's uh, doubled in size and it's great. Phase two is under construction. We just totally redid the chapel design it's gonna look amazing um so exciting stuff but you and i have uh, a big 14er coming up we should probably talk about that oh i'm so pumped for this yeah so for how many years ago did we start talking about this oh maybe three or four yeah or longer than that so father sean and i with a couple other friends um were working towards finishing the 14ers all together now there's a contentious debate amongst us, but it's we respect the it's a you know plurality is acceptable in this of how many fourteeners actually are there, and we will not get into the details. But there's a basic debate between fifty four and fifty eight. I am a strong advocate of the fifty four being old school, um, and Sean is an advocate of the fifty eight. So, anyways, he's finishing the fifty eight. I'm finishing the fifty four. Both of us are finishing the fourteeners. Um, I am finishing mass on the fourteen. I did the summits when I was uh, in Sean's age. And um, so we decided to save Mount Holy Cross, which is uh, one of the most iconic uh, mountains in Colorado because on the western face is this huge, uh, what we call a coolar. So a big, imagine a big kind of gash in the side of the mountain that's the shape of a huge cross. Mm-hmm. And so it's the Mount Holy Cross. It's magnificent. So in the early summer when the snow is in the coolar, uh, you see this huge cross on it. Uh, we're not going to climb the cooler. Obviously, it's September. We're going to be coming from the other side. Um, but we're going to do it on the Feast of the Holy Cross. That's right. Which is epic. And then have Mass on the Feast of the Holy Cross on top of Mount, Mount Holy, Holy Cross. Cross. Yep. So that's on September 14th. So pray for us. This podcast will come out on Thursday. And then the following Thursday, we will be up on the top. We'll probably put something on um, Instagram and Facebook to say hi to everybody. 54 14ers. Uh, most of them are, I would say about half of them are like, class one class twos that you know a hard hike pretty hard hike uh but then the other half are really serious climbs you're actually doing more like um 
hybrid like rock climbing slash like mountaineering which is which is super fun we love it as we've had uh, a lot of great years together uh, on the peaks had a lot of friends join us um Hannah and a couple of girls were doing it with us, but they, they chose the more noble route of getting married and having children. So That's right. Catherine Morris and Hannah Beasley, uh, will, they will finish someday with us once the kids are all grown up out That's of the house right. and they don't have babies That's right. around. So Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, it'll be good. And we'll see. We have a friend named Casey Van Pelt also who is an absolute freak of nature. He was Maniac. the guy on the Caro Trail, and he's like, he had like 15 to do like two weeks ago. And I was like, are you going to finish these? And just talk to him today. He's got like three. He left. was the guy on the Colorado tra- uh, trail who left a jar of peanut butter open so he could meet a bear. <laughs> he was luring a bear into my tent so he could shoot the bear with his gun through my tent, by the way. We never really talked through like the, the details of this. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I was like, I have a personal stake in this, but. That's awesome. When yeah. was your, what was your first 14 year? When was it? My first 14 year was when I was in seventh grade. Mount Albert, uh, the one you were on. And I remember hating it, hating every moment of it. I start, I'm working on a, on a book. This is not the book that just came out that I'm going to talk about today, but this is the next one. And I start the story of my first 14er, which was a very funny experience. And that's in the prologue. Um, but that was in 1996. Wow. Yeah. Were you even born? I was two years old. Oh my God. Yeah. And I vowed never to do a 14er again after that. I hated it. And here we are. You just did your 64th? 64th. Mount Holy Cross will be 65. That's awesome. Yep. Uh, of unique summits. Is that what you call it? Or total summits? Total summits. You guys, this, you're like the 14ers.com generation, so you got all these kind of lingo <laughs> and all your numbers and this stuff. So anyways, the, if you want to learn more about how many 14ers are, there's a good article out there. We could post it. Um, basically, the question is of... is what distinguishes peaks Mm -hmm. so we won't go into this for too long but it's kind of interesting because it's it really is all arbitrary if you think about it like the list um so the standard route uh or the standard kind of uh metrics prior to 10 years ago was 300 foot prominence uh between saddles so you see a saddle between two peaks Mm -hmm. and it's got to drop at least 300 feet and that was kind of the distinguishing mark that gives you 52 14ers but everybody was like you can't not have uh, North Maroon and El, El, Diente. El Diente, which are two just very prominent peaks, but they don't hit that. So it was 54. And I guess Jerry Roach was the one who kind of cooked all this up. Yeah. And then 14ers.com came into business and now everybody has 58. So they think I'm a Jim Oak. So. Oh, hey, if I ever do mass on all the summits, I probably won't do it on Cameron Peak. Yeah. So Cameron Peak is absolutely not a different mountain. I totally refuse to do that. But <laughs> that's right. North Aeolus, maybe. Anyways. <laughs> This is getting very obscure. Let's get more obscure and talk about the book I just published. Bride Adorned. Congrats on finishing. Congrats on uh, getting it published. That's a thank huge, you. huge, huge step. Thank you. Thank you. I was, um, I've been very, very excited for this moment for many years. Um, I went for graduate studies in 2015, mm-hmm. and I did two years of a license in Rome under a wonderful Portuguese uh, Opus Dei priest named Miguel de Salis, who then ended up being my dissertation director. So in 2017, we started working on this project. So I did that for several years and then came back, and then this book almost died uh, and never made it to print. Um, and, and I'll tell the story briefly. You know, when you have a dissertation, Nobody wants to actually read dissertations because they're extremely boring. And you're writing them for like five people. Mm -hmm. Your dissertation board, basically. And dissertations have everything. Like any time that you, I would translate something out of the German, I would have to put the German in the bottom because they're watching for, you know, so it is, it is an examination, so to speak. So to, so to, uh, to write a book out of a dissertation requires uh, a kind of a movement out now believe it or not some egghead at the university of chicago wrote a book called from dissertation to book hmm. probably the most boring thing i've ever read <laughs> but it was very helpful yeah so i spent two years working with a certain press in the united states catholic press that will rename nameless is connected to a university which will rename nameless <laughs> and for two years they're like this is awesome we love the book everything's great and Oh, uh, you know, everything's good. And you go through these review processes. So they send your book off to scholars. Mm-hmm. And then six months later, they send all the review. And then you got to make all the changes. And then you send it the next round. It took two years. Gets to the last round of this anonymous board from this anonymous university. Uh, and a non-theological woman professor 
said, I don't like his take on Mary and his take on women, uh, not Mary, his take on women in the church. And it was just bullet in the head right there. That's so crazy. She must have a lot of influence then. Apparently. Yeah. So I was so, so pissed off that I did what? You raced me up Squaw Pass and uh, squashed my record. I went back into high school mode, which is <laughs> I, I found all the old Rage Against the Machine and Metallica that I that gets the people going, and I created a playlist called Beat Sean Conroy at All Costs, and I went as hard as I possibly could up Squaw Pass. On the bike. And... I think that I'm going to hold that record for yeah, a while. Yeah, that one's unbeatable. I, I have just, to get seven of the eight. That's the, that's the one I, I rode out of get. just pure rage. So anyways, the story continues, and it gets better from there. Um, some of the people who felt bad for me at that press were like, why don't you contact Matthew Lebering um, and see if he's interested in picking it up. So Emmaus Academic, which is a younger uh, but really great academic press, I, I was like, this thing is just totally ready to go. And mm-hmm. Levering is the... Dr. Matthew Levering is the, he's like an empire of Catholic publishing now. He's also a consummate gentleman. He said, we'd love to take it. We're kind of backlogged through COVID, so it's going to take a while. And so for two years, I worked with them, and it's finally out. That's incredible. Is so, this the Levering, that, is this the professor at Mundelein? Yep, exactly. Okay. Yep, so he works with, Dr. Scott Hahn is the editor-in-chief of Emmaus Academic. You might be familiar with Emmaus Press, that's the popular press, and then they founded Emmaus Academic some years ago for, for more of these kind of publications. And they're really interested in, in certain thinkers, especially this guy, Matthias Shabin, which is why my thesis kind of made its way into their press. So anyways, that's the story of this whole thing. That's awesome. It's over. Well, congratulations. I remember, golly, three, four, five years ago, whenever it was, when you finished the dissertation, you got public, or you got it, um, finished it and sent it into Santa Croce. And then you sent it to some of your friends, me, Included of I can't send all of it because it's technically under copyright now since it's um, given at the university. But you sent us the introduction, and mm-hmm. I read the introduction, which I thought was phenomenal. Um, hopefully, the rest of the book is also phenomenal because I've yet to read the rest of the well, book. Well, thank you. But the the introduction was great, and just the overview of your project, bride adorned, perichoresis relationship, Mary Church, which we'll get into what all that means in a minute. But um, if you don't mind me just leading this part right here. What I loved about the introduction, one, it set the stage for everything, but two, you had this beautiful introduction about walking in Trastevere to one of the oldest churches in the world, the house church there in Rome, um, of this beautiful mosaic. And I just loved how poetic and and it just like, it really captivated my attention. And I thought that was a brilliant way to start the introduction. So I don't know if you want to explain that a little bit. Well, thank you. You are um, probably the only person who will describe this as brilliant, but you're very (laughs) kind as, as my buddy. So um, yeah, so one of the great privileges of being in Rome is praying in these churches. And there was one that always really struck me. And again, the whole, the whole book is centered on the relationship of Mary and the church as a perichoresis. We're going to talk about it in a second, but this very unique relationship, they really are one mystery and they can't be separated from each other. And a lot of times what happens in history and in like contemporary thinking about this is Mary seems like this kind of idol up way up there. She's up on the, she's the statue up there and the church is this kind of, kind of backwards thinking, you know, um, antiquated institution run exclusively by frustrated celibate men. Mm-hmm. And to think of the church as primarily feminine and primarily maternal, that's a pretty radical recasting of our vision of how we think about things, but that's really what it is. It doesn't mean that the the hierarchy, which is distinctively masculine, and we'll get back to this in a bit, it doesn't mean that it's not supposed to be male only, but it just means that that's a part of the church. The church is totally feminine and totally Marian. So this image came to mind in my favorite church in Rome, which is called Santa Maria in Trastevere. And uh, this church was, as you can read on page one, uh, was the oldest church to Mary built in the West. Hmm. So in the year 220, it's a house church. It's established by Pope St. Callistus. Um, it was actually like a, a tavern for soldiers um, that the emperor at the time was not Christian. It was like, I'd rather this go to the Christians. He said, I prefer that it should belong to those who honor God, uh, whatever their form of worship be. So, hmm. And then with the legalization of Christianity under Pope Julius, it becomes a titular church, one of the f- kind of the OG 25 churches of Rome. And... 
uh, it's beautiful. So fast forward another uh, 700 years, there's these mosaics that are put in the apse of the church, so behind the altar, and they're really stunning. And one of them is this depiction of, of uh, Mary and Jesus. And uh, the way that they're interacting is, is what I started to kind of reflect on in terms of understanding the relationship of Mary and the church as bride of God. Um, as bride of Christ in his divinity. We got to be very careful with that. Um, and so the book was, the book form of the dissertation uh, is called A Bride Adorned, um, which is a line from Isaiah chapter 61. We always think of Isaiah 61 as we hear, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor, blah, blah, blah. Jesus quotes this in Matthew chapter 11. But at the end of it, it goes into this really beautiful. St- image about the bridegroom and the bride and the bride is adorned or bedecked as sometimes it's, mm-hmm. some translators say with jewels. And I think that the, the jewels are grace, uh, especially the Immaculate Conception. Uh, so the bride is adorned, the bride of Christ, the bride of God is Mary and the church together. Uh, and so that's how I kind of want to frame the title. Mm. It sounds a little better than Mary Church Perichoresis, which was the uh, title of the dissertation. Right. So that's the introduction. Yeah, beautiful. So anyways, this this podcast is uh, is kind of, uh, it's not just like, uh, <laughs> um, how do I say this? Like, this isn't my pathetic plea for you to buy it. I will pathetically plead for you to buy it. I'm not, I'm not above that. But I, uh, it, this might be like a, like a guide to help people with it because friends have written in and they're like, we don't understand what the word, the title means, mm. so we're very intimidated to buy this. Peter Polito was like, on a scale of one to ten, how much am I going to understand? You know, because people want to read this, but Correct, yeah. I don't want to let them on and say, "Oh, it's super easy to read." This is like, yeah. you know. So, do you have any thoughts on? I mean, you haven't read it, but uh, based on kind of your own experience of reading technical theology, what you would say to? Yeah, I think um, never be afraid to discuss it with someone and. Um, never be afraid if you find a word that you don't know, like just look it up. Now, if it's theological language, it might be a little bit hard to look it up, but you know, ask a priest, ask someone, you know, but I would say, even if you only understand 60, 70%, it's like, you're still wrestling with something, right? This is, it's good to wrestle with. Um, so I'm very excited to read it. I think there's going to be certain things that maybe I don't understand, but, uh, certainly it will lead to conversation and certainly, I think it's worth re- uh, wrestling with. And I also think like part, right, part of what a dissertation does, it, it's meant to make a claim mm-hmm. in an area. And so what you're doing, what your project is, Father John, is is a new development. Um, that might be a little strong, but kind of a new um, continuity of maybe um, understanding things anew, maybe is the way to phrase that, in theology. And so I think this project is worth <coughs> diving into because... And you'll probably talk about this in a minute, but Mariology, the study of Mary, and ecclesiology, the study of the church, for for centuries were studied together as one mystery Mm -hmm. because Mary is the church. The church is Mary. The church is Marian. And we separated them for different reasons, uh, but we're trying to get back to putting them together because you can't understand one without the other. Right on. So it's worth reading. Yes. Uh, It is. It is. um, When you write a dissertation, you have to... You have to make a creative contribution to the field. Now, you're not saying something new in the sense that revelation is God's self-disclosure. Theology is just unpacking it. But as the centuries go by, we're starting to we see things from different angles, from different perspectives. We kind of draw different things out. Um, and, uh, and especially when uh, a lot of us who do dissertations, it's like we're just looking at, like, what did really awesome intelligent people say? And then maybe we'll take one thing and try and break that apart and that's what this whole project is yeah. is in the 19th century as you mentioned this guy named matthias joseph shaban um took an idea from the church fathers so this is like early you know third fourth fifth century and applied it to marrying the church that term is called perichoresis and i'll explain what perichoresis means in a second but that's what the whole book really is is like this one idea of this one guy in the 19th century and then how it affected four guys in the 20th century who I think had a really big impact on the Second Vatican Council and the way that we should be talking about the church. And then that leads to the final section, which is, well, what does that have to say for us today? Mm. So the three parts of, there's three parts to the book. The foundations, 
which is the relationship between the church, perichoresis and Shaban. Part two, which is the developments. That's when we look at the four guys, Bouye, Balthazar, Journet, and a guy named Leo Shefsik that nobody really knows, but who's really interesting. And then the last part is the application, mm. uh, where I talk about uh, a number of different kind of more immediate things and why we need to really be representing the church as Mary in light of this conversation. So that being said, uh, total disclosure, full honesty, the first part and the last part are going to be most interesting to people. Mm-hmm. Um, the first chapter I completely rewrote. I scrapped and completely rewrote after teaching Mariology for a couple of years, including wow. your class. Yeah. I just realized that I was like, I can do this a lot better now. I can write, I can write this a lot better after um, reading it. But I would definitely say the introduction and chap- chapter one, I think, is the most readable. It's a, it's a baseline introduction to... What is the relationship of Mary and the church? Um, and for 30 pages, I think it's it's worth uh, reading. Then it goes into perichoresis, which is going to be the technical term. We, we're undiving. And then we do the the deep dive into the four 20th century guys who are awesome and worth reading. But if you if you kind of die out in the middle, just jump to the end and kind of get to the, the good stuff where I start kind of proposing, eh, this is what I think I think we should uh, we should look at. So... Awesome. Okay, perichoresis. What do you know about the word? It's a Greek word. <clears throat> it's a Greek word. Isn't to, it, is to, it in the Bible? Um, not the way we understand it today. Not in the Bible. Period. Not in the Bible, yep. But kreo is, kreo means to walk. Korain, yep. Okay. <laughs> do you want me to keep <laughs> yeah, going? Sorry. So peri, peri means around. Right. Um, and uh, korain means uh, to walk. So to kind of walk around. and And I think it's kind of a... I don't know necessarily why we translate it that way because more at the heart of what perichoresis means, it literally means a mutual indwelling. Right. So this is the way we talk about the Trinity, that you can't have the Father without the Son, without the Holy Spirit, where one person of the Trinity is all, all three are present. They mutually indwell within each other. And oftentimes when we draw the Trinity, right, we draw a triangle. And certainly there, there's something to that. But imagine just like, drawing you know the father son and holy spirit just those those letters or whatever on a on a whiteboard and then all of them are together like you can't have one without the other they mutually dwell within each right. other that's what perichoresis means mutual indwelling yeah so the word comes from a fifth century bc greek author and then it kind of plays into the thing and you just described real perichorane to to walk around or to dance around even mm-hmm. um and so it's this relational term it's a very dynamic and a very interesting term. Um, and But the reason the fathers are, are picking this up, and remember the fathers are the, the early bishops and theologians in the first millennia who are trying to kind of work through the controversies, especially around the nature of God and the nature of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're really looking for the, the right techni- technical uh, metaphysical language to help us kind of express these truths. So Jesus is talking about perichoresis, but he just doesn't use the word. Uh, he says this in John chapter 10, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. That is a really complicated thing for him to say. Mm. What does it mean to be in the Father? Mm. If he's separate from the Father, now they share one essence, um, but they are distinct persons. So one usia, we would say, one substance, but three hypostasis, like different persons. Uh, This took centuries to kind of sort this out. But what does it mean that they're, they are in the other? And that's where this word perichoresis is so helpful and really beautiful because, as you said, it means mutual indwelling or interpenetration is perichoresis. So the fathers will use this and say, uh, the first one to do this is in the 4th century, Gregory Nazianzen will say, we can talk about how Jesus' two natures, divine nature, human nature, are perichoretic. <laughs> that's the first time it gets used. And that's mm-hmm. like, okay, that's really interesting. It's not going to totally work because it's really the human nature that's hypostatically united to the divine person, you know, and so it, but then uh, several centuries later, it's going to um, get to a guy named um, John Damascene, who's going to say, yeah, but this, this is best used about describing the three persons of the Trinity. So mm-hmm. God is one, but three. And so those three persons interpenetrate each other. They are so intimately in relation. Their persons are their relations, as St. Thomas Aquinas will say centuries later, that 
you can't understand them apart from their relationship. And so that is what God is. God is interpersonal. God is totally relational. But the persons are themselves the relations. That's in God. Now, this plays out in creation in an analogous and participatory way. You and I are persons and we have a relationship. We are not coextensive with that. Mm -hmm. But what's the closest thing we come to that where a person and a relation become coextensive in the natural realm? Marriage, right? The the two shall become one. Exactly. So my brother-in-law, Jordan, marries my sister, Katie. There's no such thing as Katie right nepple anymore and there's this thing as jordan lynch they don't live independent lives they're not just roommates and they give a really beautiful very practical talk at the marriage prep retreat about togetherness yeah that's right and it's awesome because they they talk about yeah we have some friends who kind of live parallel lives Mm -hmm. she does her girls trips and he's in his man cave and whatever and it's like no you're kind of a quasi paracretic reality now in grace yeah and uh so Perichoresis is something that is a part of Trinitarian love and that whenever we see kind of authentic manifestations or expressions of the love of God playing out, especially in the order of grace, there's going to be some kind of vestiges of perichoresis. Yeah, that's right. In the marriage, right, the two become one. You can't identify one without the other. I can't talk about Katie without talking about Jordan. I can't right. talk about Jordan without talking about Katie. And right, it's it's the perichoresis of the Trinity. You can't talk about the Father without talking about the the Son and Holy Spirit. Um, jumping the gun a little bit here, but this is what you say with then Mary Church. You can't talk about the Church without talking about Mary. You can't talk about Mary without talking about the Church. That's They're right meant to be seen together. That's right. So Matthias Shaban in the nineteenth century. Uh, is going to say, well, this is interesting. What if we take uh, that term mm-hmm. that the Father's using to talk about the Trinity and Christ, what if we apply that to Mary and the Church analogously? So that's crazy. Uh, and this is this is a completely creative and, and very powerful move to say that you cannot understand the Church apart from her relationship to Mary, and Mary you can't understand apart from her relationship to the Church. They're so intimately connected that they're actually incomprehensible without each other. Mm. And that's why they're incomprehensible. Mm. That's why Catholics, as I say, say in Mariology course on the first day, Mary's reduced to a statue up there and like a couple doctrines from the last two centuries. That's, and, how, that's how we think about it. And, and 50 beads that you pray. <laughs> and 50 beads that you pray. And yep. the church, again, is just, yeah, this kind of sociologically constructed institution that's, for, for whatever reason, still run by a hierarchy. Um, that's not good. We got to move beyond that. So there's a long story that we don't have to get into um, about why that happened. But basically, the fathers had a vision that the bride of Christ was the new Eve. So you go back to Adam, and this is this is chapter one for you. So it's like laying out what is the history, the theological history of the, this relationship of Mary and the Church. Uh, and so you can buy the book and get a, a much longer kind of um, detail of this, but. In Romans and 1 Corinthians, St. Paul says very powerfully that Christ is the new Adam. What does he mean by that? This is typology. Yep. Uh, right? So that Adam is a type of Christ in a certain sense. So, yeah, I, I don't put me on the spot. Sorry. Yeah. How would you describe a type? It's a hard word to translate. Um, I really don't remember. Like typology is, is the study of like how... Uh, the old is kind of hidden in the new. So like yeah, how, you got it's, it. yeah. how it's prefigured in a certain sense. Prefigurement, exactly. A type is a figure. Um, I was just thinking Larkin does this all the time. He likes to put you on the spot. And uh, <laughs> I'm not going to try and put you on the spot anymore. You're not in class with me anymore. Um, a type is a figure. And so a prefigurement happens in the Old Testament that finds fulfillment in the new. Mm-hmm. And that's typology is putting types together. And this is how the fathers did theology. Right. Theology wasn't a science uh, until the, kind of in the medieval period. And so, so Paul is doing this, and he's like, okay, so if, if Jesus is the founding a new humanity in grace, then he's the new Adam. So Adam is the, the, the father of humanity. Jesus is the new founding father of humanity. Mm-hmm. We call him the new Adam. So then he goes a century later, and St. Justin Martyr and St. Irenaeus are like, well, who's the new Eve? Right. Mary and the church. 
And so they start putting that together from typology. And then in the, as the centuries unfold, um, because of controversies around who Jesus is, especially around, is Mary the mother of God? That's a big question in the fifth century. We start to dig more deeply into the Marian mystery, and there's a lot kind of outpouring of devotion and liturgy and these different things that happen around the, the theological articulations of Mary, because Mary is a Christological fact. Like, she exists totally and completely for Jesus. She only makes sense in relationship to Jesus. Mm-hmm. But secondarily, she doesn't make sense when without separation from the church. Mm-hmm. So imagine you're back in Mariology class, and I got my big schemas drawn up on the board. Do you remember no, this? That no one can read. That no one can read. I draw up kind of all of salvation history, and I just point out that woman is absolutely essential to salvation history. Mm-hmm. She's in the first chapter. She's in the last chapter. Yep. And it's all tied together in Mary and the church, but also in Israel, who's also understood as woman. So the so Zion or Israel, Mary Church become the biblical woman mm-hmm. that is the new Eve, and that's also the the uh, apocalyptic woman at the end of Revelation mm-hmm. who we see. So it's just like it all ties together, but we have to see them in relationship, and we can't isolate one part from the others. Yeah, yeah, I do remember that, and I've, I've always been struck by that word, like biblical woman. Um, and th- And that's why, like, <laughs> to go back to what you said, like this this person like crushed your thesis because she didn't like the way that you viewed women in the church. Like this is a, a exalting, this is honoring women in the church, and and Mary's place in the church to say like the church is feminine, and the more that she lives her feminine genius, her femininity in the world, the more that the church will actually look like the church and not like uh, an old backwards institution that a bunch of white men or not necessarily <laughs> yeah. white men. <laughs> Uh, lead or whatever you yeah, know so. they're, they're they're white here at, at this parish yeah, you that's true v told um absolutely that's right on and i think that um the the hard thing is to convince people really convince them that women because of mary have a greater role and a greater mission in the church than priests mm-hmm. but it doesn't look like that because you're the guy all dressed up up there. You get to hold the chalice. You get to kind of call the shots and everything. And it's like, and part of that is the way that we're living in, in the, the church right now. And that needs to be reformed according to its its authentic structure and essence. But, I mean, if Mary is the absolute perfect and best disciple of Jesus, and he does not choose her to be a priest, mm. he's saying something very clearly. Yeah. He's not saying these guys are the best. He's saying these guys have a very particular role to do, and it needs to be masculine in this in this role. But the feminine is all the more important. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a great book by Joseph Ratzinger called Daughter Zion, and in there he talks about how when you unpack the, the mystery of biblical woman, what you do is you, uh, you rediscover the reality of creation. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of a difficult thing to get our heads around, but it's really important. Mary, as a woman stands in a feminine posture and relationship to God. And at the incarnation, she utters these words, fiat mihi secundum verbum tuum, let it be done according to thy word. Fiat, be it done, yes, just let it happen, is a receptive posture. And St. Thomas Aquinas says, Mary offers that fiat on behalf of all of creation. Mm. All of creation. That's, that's interesting. Mount Elbert, you know, whatever mountain goats were up there, your mountaineers, ourselves, everybody who's ever lived, everything that's ever been created was enveloped in this one feminine act of total receptivity whereby God comes into the world. Mm-hmm. That's pretty outstanding. What it also shows is the nature of creation as itself standing in a feminine posture towards God. Who is the creator, creator versus creation. Right. And now you're saying to yourself, this sounds like Mother Earth kind of stuff. And why does God get to be a man? You know, you hear all this stuff all the time. And it's like, okay, think of it like this. God is not sexed, so God is not male. But God discloses himself as masculine in maleness of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And is it is that thunder out there? It is, yeah. That's crazy. And then the primary um, dialogue partner is a woman in her femaleness, which is very important. The, 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 the polarity here, the distinction and the complementarity of it, because all of this is about the communion of love. And love is about the exchange, eternal exchange of gift. 
And giftedness, if the logic of love is gift, then it's gift and reception. Somebody gives the gift, the other receives. The gift is not completed until it's received, and vice versa. Mm. So God self-discloses, and that initiative act is masculine, and Mary's reception, total reception on behalf of creation, which actually allows God to come into her, is an act of feminine receptivity. All of this to say, no matter if you're man or woman, you have to be Marian in your relationship to God. To be Christ in the world, to be a Christian in as a created person, is to be Mary. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, because the Son is receiving the the eternal giftedness from the Father from all eternity, and that's a whole other thing. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, no, this is great, talk. and and right to to bring the conversation back to the the marital imagery as well. Like this is what matrimony is, right? It's it's an espousal. It's a relationship. It's togetherness, as we were saying, and so. If Christ, if if Christ is the new Adam, and Mary Church is the new Eve, it shows bride and bridegroom. And then if we stand in that feminine posture as well as creature, and this is Isaiah sixty six, I believe, right? God wants to espouse Himself to us, right? We stand in that posture so that God can be espoused to us, that we can also, in a certain sense, I don't know if I should say this; this might be heresy, but in a certain sense, that we can be in a perichoretic relationship with the Lord as well, that he dwells in me and I dwell in him. I mean, that's kind of what heaven's going to be like. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's um, heretical. I think that we have to start really nuancing it, but um, St. Maximus the Confessor, in one of the fathers who uses perichoresis, one of the three, he talks about grace as being perichoretic. Hmm. And I think that's where Shaban jumps on it, because the whole mystery of Mary and the Church is a graced reality. Um, and so there's something to that, but yeah, we have to kind of um, be careful with it. But you can see how, even in the course of this conversation, if you're a feminist professor and you're like, oh, this is a book about Our Lady and the importance of women in the church, but now we're, we're, we're pushing into it, you can see how it's like, oh, this thing's got to go hmm. because it's actually not creating this kind of sexual revolution style women's emancipation Right. Stick it to the man. It's like, well, the man kind of sucks. They're not there at the foot of the cross, all the apostles. All of them abandoned him and fled. So even John at one point abandons him. Mary is there. Mary is the church at the foot of the cross. She's the one who receives Christ, not just at the incarnation or fiat, but offers a silent fiat at the foot of the cross, which allows for the redemption of the world to happen in her heart, in the church. And Mary stands at the heart of the church at Pentecost and then for all of history and still to this day as the receptive center of the church. Mm. And this is so important down to the very fact of you gave communion this morning to somebody who wasn't worthy. Mm. Are you going to freak out over that as a priest? If you have an understanding that Mary is the one who receives God from the fullness of time at the heart of the church, then you, you don't want that to happen, but you can have the confidence that it's not just arbitrary sacrilege that God has actually accounted for this. That's so cool. Yeah, I got a lot. I got yeah. a lot here. I don't, I don't want to bore you. And we're also kind of run down. So, we're, you know, um, I do want to talk about the perichoresis itself though. If we can do one more kind of deep dive and then we'll kind of call it. Is that okay? I have one question uh, at the end. Okay. Don't just, I might forget. Don't let me forget. I got another thing for you before we do that really quick. When you think about, and we've talked about this before, but when you're praying mass, this is just worth thinking about at the end. Um, so after the Eucharistic prayer, we say the, our father deliver us Lord from every evil, blah, blah, blah. And then we say, look not on our sins, yeah. but on the faith of your church. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. What is the faith of the church? Yeah. Yeah. It's Mary's faith. Mary's faith. Right. I love that line because I think it's a healing prayer for the church. Yeah. Right? Look, not on our sins, right? The sins of your people, Lord, this, our sins, the sins of priests and bishop, the sins of, of the people in this congregation, but look on the faith of the church. I had beers yesterday with Todd Fraker, one of our favorite Protestants of all time, one of the most honest and amazing men ever. But it would be hard for him, I would imagine, if mm. he heard us talk about the faith of the church. Because mm. faith is something I have. Right. How could you pray that? Look not on our sins, but on the faith of the church. Well, if Mary is the church, then the, there's a fullness and, and virginal purity to her, to her faith. Because Mary had faith. Yep. And Mary's faith deepened throughout her life. That's yeah. really important. 
I keep saying everything's really important. That means nothing's probably actually important. So, all right, perichoresis. Or did you want to ask your question? No, I want to ask my question at the end. Perichoresis. We're calling it with a question. So, how exactly is are Mary and the church in a paracritic relationship? This is where it gets really tricky, tricky and technical. And I will refer you to the chapter two of the book when you get down to it. But basically, everything hinges around the question of motherhood. So, Mary. The most important thing to know about Mary is that she is the mother of God. Mm-hmm. And that took, again, the 5th century, a lot of debate. Cyril of Alexandria and Astoria is trying to sort out, is she actually the mother of God? Yes. The second person of the Trinity in his humanity, this is his mother. Mary contributes her huma- the humanity of the Son. This is where he gets his DNA from. Correct. And th- that means she's part of the, the whole kind of cooking up the hypostatic union to... to Make it sound like it's sourdough bread or something, but she <laughs> she brings an essential part of this in, yeah. in the humanity. Um, yeah, the the chromosomes, right? Yeah, yeah. This is so. So Mary's motherhood is extremely important in the formation of the hypostatic union, which means the 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 union of humanity and divinity, which happens in the person of Jesus Christ. Mm. The two natures coming together. We talk about God all the time as if he's this abstract idea. There is no connection to God apart from the humanity of Jesus. Right? This is Jesus is God and man. This is the touch point between divinity and humanity. We don't. No one knows the Father other than this. Mm-hmm. So Mary is integral to the to the construction of that thing, so to speak, mm-hmm. to the bridge to God, and by contrib- contributing to humanity, which she does by offering her Marian or her receptive and feminine fiat. Okay. So if Jesus, if Mary is the mother of God, mm-hmm. then Mary, who is the church, and is the church precisely as the mother of God, what is the church? Well, the church is the body of Christ. It's the incarnation extended into history. The church is when God is born in souls, right? Mm. When you baptize babies, what's happening? It's the birth of the life of God, God, the, the indwelling of the Holy Trinity. We believe that happens when a when a child is baptized and grows into the life of faith mm-hmm. so this is this is unbelievable god only dwells eternally in two places in himself and in the human soul mm. amazing so there he is being born but if mary is the mother of god then every time that god is born in a particular soul mary's motherhood is being exercised hmm. which means that the church which is the mother bringing souls into or bringing God into souls through baptism and through the Eucharist, through the life of the church, she's actually operating in and through Mary's divine maternity. Mm-hmm. So Mary's maternity is within and informs the church's maternity. So they're one mystery, but it's actually Mary. So Mary is the one who is actively, as a mother, bringing God into the child that you, as a priest, are baptizing. Mm-hmm. Mary's motherhood is always operative in that. Yeah. And the, the motherhood itself is the perichoresis for Shaban. Mm. It's the mutual indwelling, interpenetration of that maternal mission that allows these persons to reside within one another. So if I take what you said and put it at a first grade level. Yeah, that's tough. Um, essentially what you just said is you cannot have the Trinity inside of you. You cannot be baptized uh, with God inside of you, unless it's through the work of the church and Mary. Right. So then my question becomes, you're saying we have to have the church, right? You cannot not have the church. So the whole like, right, this was a few years ago, almost a decade ago now, um, that video that went viral, why I hate religion, but love Jesus. Right. We need the church. It's impossible not to have the church. Um, is that true? Yes, Absolutely. It's it's not essential in the sense that, or necessary in the sense that God could have done it other ways, but this is the way he did it. Hmm. When he set up the mediation of himself through a woman and then put that woman at the heart of Pentecost, uh, Mary is still the heart of the church, and Mary is the church, and she does it as mother. So, And this changes the way we think about faith. We're born into the family of the church mm-hmm. through Mary's spiritual maternity. This is how God is born in us, and we're educated according to the maternity of the church. The church is mother because the church is 
the world reconciled to the Father, as as uh, Saint Augustine says, Mundus reconciliatus. And if the church, if creation really stands in a feminine posture to God, then it would make sense that the church is mother, but Mary is the personal concretization, the real symbol, as Balthazar would say, that there's actually somebody there at the heart of the church, a real person, a real heart, a real intellect, hmm. a real feminine genius that's just that is actively working to all make all of this happen. And yes, she's the queen of heaven, but she's not just up there statically kind of buzzing, you know, like an electric light. She's actively at work in every sacrament. And that's why we call her the mediatrix of all graces. Mm. So she's actually, and it's not because she's this kind of magic frou-frou thing kind of floating around giving us oofle dust, but because Mary is the mother of God, you can logically get all the way down the line to say that if God's grace, which is his life, is disclosed and given in creation, then it has to happen in and through Mary's motherhood. Mm. That's the only way God comes into the world. Yeah. And we live in such a Protestant rationalistic culture that all of this has been dismissed, yeah. where we actually think faith is something we choose, and we actually dare to ask this crazy question, do I actually think God exists? Mm. It's crazy. Yeah. But this is the heart of the church, and this is what the book's going to try and help you understand. I love it. I'm, I'm honestly wrestling this right now, like because typically when I think of faith, I'm just like my faith, like I believe in this, but it's not so much of like the faith of the church. It's not so much of like, and even like the the census fidelium or whatever, or the census fidei. But it's like this is the 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 church at work. It's the Marian heart, which is her heart of faith, which she continues to to give to us. It's it's. Yeah, I don't even know how to articulate it, but I'm wrestling with this right now. I think sometimes the the challenge is we're trying to figure out how do you how do you put Mary back in the church, and we just have to say we got to put the church back in Mary, mm. and we have to do that by going right to the cross. Because Mary's the Mary is the church at the incarnation. Mary is the church at the cross, and then Mary is the church at Pentecost. The three kind of fundamental moments when the church is born. And that is the mystery of the church. And yes, she has a visible hierarchical structure that is essential to it. Mm-hmm. And the, the hierarchy serves in a very particular way for the mediation of and the organization of this life. But the all-encompassing and comprehensive greater mystery, which is coextensive with the church, is Mary. It's not Peter and the apostles. And yeah. it's not us. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. You got a question or was that the question? I got another question. Okay. It changes gears, though. Are we ready to change Let's gears? Let's do it. Yeah, we need to wrap this up because we're running out of space on the machine. That's right. We only have about 15 minutes left. So um, if I ever hypothetically got sent for further studies, this would be like my topic that I'm like super interested in right now. Uh, but I'm wondering if you know much about it or have done much about it. But when you're talking about uh, Adam and Eve, and then we have the new Adam and Eve, uh, one of the ways that the fathers locates this is the fact that they're all virgins. Adam and Eve were virgins. Uh, now that's highly debated with theology of the body and different stuff today. Uh, but if they're virgins, what does that mean for Mary and Jesus to be virgins? And I would just love to like dive into that and just like, cause I, I've yet to find a book that like really articulates that of like Adam and Eve being virgins and how the birth of the church is one of, uh, virginal love. I just love that. I love that imagery there. I think it's a great topic. I hope you get signed on for studies and, and do at least a license, write a book on it. Um, virginity is something that we kind of mock and, and, and have kind of set aside. But when you view virginity from a Marian perspective, what you're saying is that it's actually the, the physical virginity is an expression of, the virginity of her soul, of the total purity of her faith, mm. of the perfection of things, of the total ordering and the integrity of the of the whole person. And so when the fathers who are thinking Mariologically are going back to and reflecting on Adam and Eve, they really are, many of them are big time, they were virgins. So what it, what does sexuality look like? How do kids come to be? What, is the, what does that mean for the fall? Well, that's where it gets a little tricky. And, and again, it's just a theory. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's Eve is a, a virginal mother, so to speak, in some mysterious way. And Mary reflects that, even though it's elevated to a supernatural realm. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how some of the church fathers are thinking about it. So that'd be a very interesting topic. Yeah. But remember that Mary, for Augustine, this whole virginity of faith thing really matters because Mary conceives first 
Prius and mentis, he says, first in her mind and then in her body. Mm-hmm. So the body is not just this kind of, this this instrument that God uses to come to become a man. That's biologism. It's a reduction. It's Mary's faith. It's her living, vibrant faith, which is virginal, mm. untouched, untarnished, totally pure from the immaculate conception. And her body, her perpetual virginity, her body reflects that. Mm. So it's really about the whole person. So good. Love it. Good, good stuff. Well, congrats on finishing the book. If I want to buy it, where do I go? You can, we'll post the link on there, but it's going to be on, on the beast, AKA Amazon soon enough. Um, <laughs> but it's uh St. Paul press. Just, just, uh, you can just search Nepal, a bride adored. It'll take you to, uh, Emmaus academics site. And, uh, but again, we'll send you the link and thanks to anybody who ends up buying it. Really appreciate it. Uh, if not, you're okay too. <laughs> Shani, do you have any shout outs? Um, I would like to give one shout out to a man named Perry West. Perry West, uh, I ran into him. He was at a baptism the other day, and I said, "Hey, I'm in Catholic stuff now." And he goes, "Really?" And I was like, "Yeah, you did the introduction to that. So the guitar that you hear at the beginning, the intro and outro is is on a guitar um, by a man named Perry West. Uh, someone he said that he doesn't even remember how to play that anymore. Funny. He like he made it up on the spot, and he like literally doesn't know how he did it. That's funny. And he tried to play it again, and he can't. He said, "Yeah." So shout out to him. Thanks for your uh, support with the podcast and recording us that song. It's like a musical conception, mysteriously done. Thank you, Perry. Um, I'd like to give shout outs to um, the people in my acknowledgements. I will not go through all of them, but this is an opportunity um, to thank uh, a few people. First and foremost, my uh, thesis director. This is like the Oscars. They're going to push me off the stage here when I until I shut up. Um, but my thesis director um, was... Uh, Again, a guy named uh, who does not listen to the podcast, but um, Miguel de Salis, and he was just amazing. Just took care of me, was super dedicated to the project, really grateful for it. Archbishop Aquila sent me for the studies, paid for the doctorate. He's getting the first copy as soon as it arrives. Um, and then I had a, a team of people Andrew Polito, uh, Lisa Hunt, Dale Quigley, uh, Jeff and Melissa Harden, uh, Mike, Go- Mike Goble, and Rose Corman. Uh, my cousin Allie and Father Evan Coop helped me with translations and so thanks to all of them shout outs to all of them and grateful I never would have been able to get it done without their help so especially my parents too who I thank in the project for keeping me sane and sending me a lot of cookies <laughs> that's great well congrats on finishing John it's a huge accomplishment and we look forward to reading it when it comes out thanks Shani we will go back to a uh, Sean Khan topic next time he let me hijack this one for the sake of the book which I appreciate uh, so we will get back. To, you'll get back to hearing a little more Sean uh, and not Neppel raging about Balthazar and uh, talking about his own book. So, but thank you for today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all the support. Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone.